0: Uh, we 're going to pray first, and then we'll go to god 's word and see what He has for us this morning, so pray with me, please, our Lord. It really is sweet to um, be a part of the body of christ and lord we we don't want to we don't want to turn one another or even community itself into idolatry. We recognize that the goodness and the sweetness of reconnecting with brothers and sisters in christ lord that what is so good about that is what we have in common. And that is one common Lord. Uh, one Savior who is God over all. And this future hope of being together with Him in His righteous glory. The world as it should be in the shalom of God everywhere. And uh, we have much in common. So Lord, thanks just for the privilege of being together And to be able to declare together the goodness of you and your glory and your majesty. I pray, Lord, this morning as we go to your word, that we would just again be reminded of the goodness of our God, the peace and the comfort that we take from who he is, from who you are, from what you're doing in this world. Uh, So, Lord, teach us from your word again by your Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Normally when I begin a message, um, I like to, you know, I use a classic attention-getting device, maybe a story or a quote or a question or something like that, and this morning I get to begin with this statement. Something I said last week was wrong, and I have to correct it. So how's that for an attention-getting device? It's not the first time, it won't be the last time. Uh, and it's kind of a small thing, but kind of not. Um, Last week, I think I told you that chapters 2 through 6 in Daniel uh, were uh, written in uh, Aramaic, and in fact, the the Aramaic section of Daniel is 2 through 7, which includes the chapter that we're in this morning, and that is somewhat significant because the point that I've been making is that the language, the original language that the book is written in, the fact that it's written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic, helps us understand the author's intentions. And so the fact that chapter 7 is also written in Aramaic, the international spoken language of the day, tells us that this message, this revelation uh, that is given here was really important not just for the Hebrew people, but for the international community. And so I want to make sure that 7 gets sort of folded into that. So again, chapter 1 is written in Hebrew, chapter, beginning in chapter 2 at verse 4, And going all the way to the end of chapter 7 is written in Aramaic, this common language of the Middle Eastern world. And then 8 through 12 is again put back into Hebrew. Uh, And it was kind of a way that uh, in chapters 8 through 12, God was really prioritizing his own people and giving them really his playbook. This is how things will unfold. And he prioritizes and privileges them uh, by giving them that message. Uh, So again, I... I would tell you, too, that uh, while chapter 7 has its challenges, particularly chapters 8 through 12, at least for me, quite frankly, are some of the most difficult in all of Scripture for me to interpret clearly and to proclaim boldly. And it's not because I disbelieve anything that's there. It's just, quite frankly, that it's hard. (laughs) It's just hard. It's hard for me to get clarity as to what all is being said and, uh, and that has to do specifically with the genre of Scripture that we find and that we're working through this morning, and that is apocalyptic genre, if you're familiar with that. You know that the book is com- or that the, the Bible is composed of different kinds of genres. We talk about this a lot. We find law and history and poetry and prophecy. And we find gospels, we find epistles, and we find apocalyptic as well. And these different genres actually have slightly different rules and nuances of interpretation so that we will get them correct. And so I want to spend just a moment talking about apocalyptic since that's where we're going to be the next two weeks. Uh, and since we don't spend a lot of time in apocalyptic literature, so that we would know how to handle that. And so if you take your handout and flip it over on the back, I've got some guidelines that I hope will be helpful for you. Starting with the definition, apocalyptic, the apocalyptic genre of Scripture, is really a subcategory of prophecy, in which God reveals his future plans, usually through dreams or visions, uh, and oftentimes containing elaborate symbolism. okay. So that's a, a fairly good working definition of what apocalyptic literature is. Daniel is an example of that. There's some examples in Isaiah. There's some examples. Where Zechariah is one that we've been through, and of course, Revelation. The purpose of apocalyptic Revelation. This is important. Please hear this. The purpose of it, it usually arises, the occasion is usually in that we find Israel or the people of God in a time and a season of crisis and questions and uncertainty. And and so God basically gives this kind of revelation, ap- apocalyptic revelation, whose purpose is mainly to encourage suffering or struggling saints. That's the purpose. If I could give you a real everyday example um, this is going to hurt a little bit. Back to school is coming. Sorry, it's a few weeks off. I know, but you know the stores have already begun. And when you send your uh, your, your firstborn kid to kindergarten for the first day, some of you can remember this, or maybe it's happening this year for you. It, it's a it's kind of a scary day and your kid has all kinds of questions they're excited they've got their new lunch pail and their new stuff and they're ready to go off to school and they kind of ask some questions like what's the day going to look like and you know, will we have a nap time? Will we have, you know, whatever. They have their fears, their apprehensions. Where will, he eat? Where will I eat? And these kinds of things. And you'll explain it to them. And you'll let them know there's going to be different parts of the day. This is your teacher. You'll have a desk and you'll have a classroom and you'll get recess. And you kind of line out the main sections of the day to give them comfort and assurance as they go into something new. And God is doing the same thing with apocalyptic literature. He's telling us, here's what this time period looks like. Be comforted. There are these demarcations and these kinds of things that will happen. And he gives us enough so that we will have assurance to go into the unknown future. Uh, in terms of hermeneutics, or how we interpret apocalyptic literature, how do we do this? Uh, there's a lot of things we could say, and this is you know, just the tip of the iceberg, but a couple of things that I think are important. First of all, we're to take the numbers and the symbolism seriously, uh, but not necessarily literally. Now, I know that's kind of loaded language for folks, but we're to take the Bible as literally as the genre intends to be taken. We know this when we come to poetry that there's a use of symbolism. We don't take it strictly literal. For reading history, we take it strictly literal. But when we come to apocalyptic, we find visions and metaphors and symbolism and numbers and all kinds of things And there's just a lot of symbolism that's going on, so we are meant to take it seriously, but not literally. We also should be focusing on the main points, not gripping tightly into the minutia of things. That's where Christians get in trouble. Uh, I think also we need to be very willing to say, I don't know. That is a skill Christians haven't learned very well. (laughs) We want to be so knowledgeable and, and to give confidence and proof to everybody. But when we are overly confident, we end up doing damage to the scripture and to the faith and to the name of our Lord. It's wise to say, I don't know. I'm not sure what that symbolizes. Or even, it seems to me. Those are important statements to make. Even Daniel himself in chapter 8, 27 and chapter 12, verse 8, says something similar where he says, this vision is beyond my understanding. And it's okay to say that, Christian. And so I want to give you just permission. I want to encourage you that this is good stuff. It's for peace and comfort. And uh, we should be careful uh, how we we handle it. Uh, Also, I want to let you know, chapter 7, just to give you a little bit of an overview here, we find that Daniel is given a dream And thankfully, he is given a corresponding interpretation to that dream that really uh, lays out the cosmic sweep of human history, just as I was sharing in that school illustration a moment ago. Uh, And what's nice about it is it's very complementary to a vision that we have already seen, one that was given to Nebuchadnezzar and interpreted by Daniel. There are some differences, but a lot of similarity. Um, And so it's really complementary. This chapter, chapter 7, is really complementary to what was revealed Back in chapter 2, we find the emergence of four kingdoms culminating in a fifth and final enduring kingdom. And it's God's way of basically saying this is the trajectory and this is the telos, the end goal of human history. These are the broad strokes. This is the sweep of things. Be comforted. Be encouraging. Be encouraged by this. Daniel's dream in chapter 7, however, is it's not just rehashing what's already been said, but in fact, it advances the revelation that has already been given. Uh, In fact, we find some new figures and details that haven't been told to us yet. Uh, But overall, the message to the people of God is the same, that our sovereign God is in control. He's in control of the entire international scene and all of human history. Therefore, the saints can keep calm and carry on, to borrow a uh, British uh, World War II propaganda message. Keep calm and carry on. Our sovereign God is in control of the international scene. Uh, One scholar I was reading said of this particular chapter, chapter 7, he said this, It would be no exaggeration to say that this chapter is one of the most important in the Old Testament. I, anytime I see that, I, I kind of immediately push back. That sounds like overstatement to me, but in fact, I think you may be right. One of the most, yeah, I think so. And another said, "This the vision of Daniel provides the most comprehensive, detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament." So we're looking at something special today. Um, chronologically, the other thing I need to tell you before we dive into it—all this by way of introduction, right? Chronologically, chapter 7 fits back into an earlier time period. It goes back to the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, as we'll see in the text. Uh, Daniel tells us that right at the outset, that this vision that he had seen occurred then. And he's basically held this vision in mind for maybe as long as 14 years before it comes out, at least in the chronological succession of the book. Uh, And we're going to learn that uh, this vision that he had at that particular point is going to help us reimagine an incident, particularly where he is dealing with Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. And we're going to see how this vision encouraged and helped Daniel in that incident. And we're going to see it as a precedent for how we ought to use it in our lives as well. well let's get to the text. Daniel 7, one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind, and he was laying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear it was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth it was told get up and eat your fill of flesh after that i looked and there before me was another beast one that looked like a leopard and on its back it had four on its back it had four wings like those of a bird this beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful, which kind of is funny to me as though the first couple weren't here, right? <laughs> all right. Um, it had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot what was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, There before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze a river of fire was flowing coming out from before him thousands upon 10000s ten, ten excuse me thousands upon thousands attended him 10000 times 10000 stood before him the court was seated and the books were opened then i continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking i kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed thrown into the blazing fire The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Well, there's some terrifying, frightening, confusing things, and there's some incredibly comforting things that we find in that passage. Uh, The first thing I want to draw out this morning is something that might be easy to overlook, and that is this that our God is a personal God who reveals himself to us and his intentions in human history. And that is something to really drink deeply of and be encouraged by. It's worth mentioning because it's so easy to overlook. But if we contrast Yahweh with the other gods and other religions of the world, we realize just how privileged we are to know the true and the living God. Allah of Islam is unknowable doesn't communicate with mankind, doesn't relate to mankind. Mankind, The God of Islam is impersonal. Additionally, the God of Islam asks his followers to die and kill for him. Conversely, the God of the Bible dies for his people to atone for their sins so that they would be raised to life and restored to relationship with him. He asks us to call him Father. Father. And he sends to us his divine son. He communicates his nature to us by way of relationship, even in the titles that we are to address him by, father and son. And so this, I just, I want to just bring this to your attention, not as a bit of academic information, but something worth noting and something worth reflecting upon. God wants us to know him and has performed many methods of revelation to that end. And so for those of us who have been Christians for a long time and we have known God our whole lives, it's easy to take for granted the beauty of our faith for its familiarity. And we can forget about the grace and the loving nature and the relational nature of our God. But I just want to remind you, even as we look at this revelation and we see what God is doing in history here, there is no God like our God. And there is no peace like the peace he offers to his people. That being said, the revelation that's given here that Daniel understands, initially it troubles him. Daniel tells us this explicitly, like in no uncertain terms. In verse 15 and 16, he says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him, in the, asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. It's just nice to know we're in good company here, right? When we read this, uh, Daniel felt as we do. Okay? And he says it again, even at the very end of the, the chapter in verse 28. He says, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Uh, I just find that comforting to know that Daniel's not just a figure, but a real person with the same kinds of emotions that we feel when we come to the Word of God. Let's look at this uh, revelation here. We find that there are four beasts, and as, we, as I've already indicated, they represent four earthly kingdoms. Uh, now, as we do with any. As we interpret any scripture, one of the things that, of course, is is important as good Bible readers is to understand the context. And so let's just remember, let's recall to ourselves, this vision is given in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Uh, And I just want to remind you that that would have been a really troubling time, a time of crisis, Uh, the relative security of our Judean exiles here that they felt, even under King Nebuchadnezzar, was being threatened. Remember, I mean, they came in. To exile King Nebuchadnezzar was changing things up, but there really was some relative security that they that they felt, or that they had earned over time. And when Belshazzar, or excuse me, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, died, and when his kingdom was sort of turning over to the next regimes, remember there was a real tumultuous time of about sixteen years, and then Belshazzar came into power. And we learned of him, uh, we've called him our pompous playboy prince, right? That's what we've sort of learned of this fellow. So you can imagine the sort of the sense of crisis and fear and, and ill at ease that God's people would have felt during this this particular time. And so it would be timely for Daniel to get a message of reassurance in the moment of all that crisis. Just as many of us today would look around and see the world as it is, and we, we might say, I could use an apocalyptic message of encouragement today. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure if I quite feel that way, but um, nevertheless. And so, of course, Daniel's vision sounds very similar to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. Four successive Gentile kingdoms leading to one enduring kingdom. Chapter 7 and chapter 2 really go hand in glove. Um, they dovetail together. Um, The angel's interpretation uh, in in verses 15 through 17 encourage us with something really particular because both chapters 2 and 7, again, they put forth four empires followed by the complete overthrow of any ungodly resistance as the fifth kingdom is established on earth to enforce God's standards and righteousness. And the angel's interpretation confirms this Explicitly. Uh, Look at verse 15. He says, I Daniel was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. Now here's where we see a little bit of difference between Nebuchadnezzar's um, dream and Daniel's. Nebuchadnezzar's dealt with kingdoms or realms or rules, but but Daniel seems to deal with rulers and kings and men. And so there's, there's a little bit of sort of forward movement and development and what's happening here. Um, also, we find this new detail in Daniel's vision. The revelation of God is advanced here. We're told specifically that Messiah himself will head this final kingdom of righteousness. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it was a rock hewn from heaven that would come and crush the feet of this image, this statue And this rock would grow into a mountain and subdue all of the earth. But it was sort of nondescript. But now in Daniel's vision, we're told some wonderful, beautiful things that this rock hewn from heaven in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is revealed as the son of man. As the divine ruler from heaven who looks like a son of man. And Daniel receives the reassurance that the Judean exile's longed to hear in verse 18 but the holy people of the most high will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever yes forever and ever now we see why this is one of the most important chapters in the old testament We see the revelation of God given the scope of human history. We learn of the rise and fall of these four empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. These destructive forces will exert their power uh, through centuries to come until the final triumph of this coming son of man. The four winds that we read about here that are kind of whipping up the sea really show us, I think we see winds used throughout Scripture and again in Revelation 7 if you want to chase it down, to kind of show us that this is the working of God from all the corners of the earth representing his judgments and his movement against the ungodly nations. And so we see that that's what's happening here. So let me bring this, try to bring this home here. What are the implications for Daniel and for us? In this revelation. While the nations rise and fall. As Daniel will witness some of. And which we will have have witnessed a lot of. They will do so by the outworking. Of the almighty power of almighty God. Where there are regimes of evil. God's people have the assurance. That they have the final victory. That is the great comfort that we get in this this text here. Let's look at this fourth kingdom. The fourth kingdom was especially frightening uh, to Daniel. Uh, The fourth kingdom has almost universally been interpreted to be referring to Rome. Although I will say this, it doesn't explicitly tell us that in the text, so we have to hold that open-handedly. Nevertheless, I, I think that's right. I think that's the case. And there are at least three features that make it more troubling than maybe the other uh, empires that we see rise. Um, there are ten, these ten horns, whatever that refers to, this little horn, whatever that refers to, and then it clearly says that the saints will suffer under this little horn. And that's troubling. So let's read the text, and then we'll walk through it here. Verse 19. So I wanted to know the meaning of the the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the other ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. All right, easy stuff here, right? <laughs> well, let's start with this first one here. We have this, these uh, ten horns, and, and I think probably the best way to understand this is some kind of a, of a um, ten nation confederacy or a confederacy of ten rulers. When we find the word horn throughout the scripture used symbolically in apocalyptic literature, it typically refers to a king, a ruler. Uh, and so that's uh, that's the best thing to understand. And the angel confirms this in verse 24. Now I want to say this: um, we're covering a lot of material here, but premillennial believers, which is the teaching position of this church, uh, that is those who are waiting for the Lord's return, and after He comes, that He will set up His thousand-year reign. That's the position that we hold here. Premillennial believers. Uh, are somewhat split as to the nature of this ten-nation confederacy that we find here. Uh, And some would maintain that this is a future revived Roman Empire... In other words, that we would need to see this Roman Empire come together and solidify itself before this prophecy and revelation could be carried out as we might expect, okay so some believe that in fact, I would say probably most believe that uh, some however also would assert that uh, when Rome was conquered, that really the hordes from the north that came down in the fifth century they didn 't unite and form a new empire instead that those individual nations. Uh, emerged and continue to exist to this day. And they would see this present age as sort of this form of a Roman Empire that continues to exist from which this little horn, or we would call the Antichrist, would emerge from. That may be way more information than you care to know, but I just want you to know there are at least two camps on this. okay? And I would tell you, I'm a bit agnostic on this one here. I don't really know um, I don't think I have a strong opinion. I definitely lean towards the, the sort of easier, more more um, consistent interpretation would lead me to believe that we would need to see a reemergence or reconstituted Roman Empire, and so that there is still a future development that has to happen. Okay, so that's that's where I tend to land on this, but I'm open-handed with it. Okay, <laughs> I'll say that. Um, but I would tell you this if the point of knowing all of this and God giving it to us is so that we will watch and be ready and keep alert, especially for the time of tribulation and the Lord's return, if that's the point of all of it, then I would say this. We have a much more telltale sign than what is given here. I can tell you confidently that the next event in the end times picture is the revealing of the man of lawlessness that is the next thing. And that's clearly told to us by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Uh, I would remind you of this. We, we went through 1 um, Thessalonians, or, and First and 2 Thessalonians here uh, a while back. I don't even remember how long ago. But the Apostle Paul made this clear to them. Remember, after he left Thessalonica, some false teachers came in behind him and began to scare the people, basically telling them, you've missed the day of the Lord. You know, stinks for you. And they were terrified. They were really afraid about all of this. And so Paul encouraged them, no, you haven't missed the day of the Lord. He encouraged them with the truth, you will know it when you see it, for one thing. And then he assured them of something specific that they would see. The revealing of the man of lawlessness would be the clear telltale sign that would let them know that the day of the Lord was upon them. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 5, it says this, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will come, for that excuse me, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And so Paul makes it really clear for those who are looking for, hey, what's the next time in this eschatological picture of the end times of the world? What's the next thing that Christians are looking for? The next clear thing seems to me to be the revealing of the man of lawlessness, as Paul has told us. And that's consistent with what we find in the Danielic revelation here. The other thing that we see that's troubling in his... his, um, vision here is we see this little horn and I would say this is in fact the man of lawlessness this is the person we call the Antichrist and we're told that he subdues three of these other kings we're told some, some I would say kind of frightening things about him that he persecutes Christians and is successful at it he's intelligent and he's arrogant that is the nature of the of the Antichrist here. And so he emerges out of this ten-nation confederacy, uh, which is in ex- existence there. Whether it's reconstituted, a uh, future Roman Empire, or something already in existence, to me, from, from whichever one of those conditions he arises is inconsequential because the next thing to watch for is the revealing of the man of lawlessness. His emergence is the next event. Uh, also, the imagery, I think, makes it clear here that... Um, at first, his rule is kind of insignificant. He he kinda comes to power slowly and then all of a sudden it's on and his power grows greatly and it becomes incredibly threatening. Um, now we're told as Christians to keep watch for these things, but not so that we can be the preppers of the you know of the world here. We're never told to go off the grid and hunker down and amass great stores of Food and ammo and whatever else as though we're going to fend off the end of the world. All right? I just, just don't do that. You make us all look stupid. I mean, <laughs> I didn't have that scripted in my message. I didn't mean to say that, but I just came out. The, the temptation here is always, when we, when we run into these apocalyptic things, for some people is to, is to lay out a timeline, chart everything out, get out the Google calendar and plot things, Right? But the point of all of this is God is saying, get out and live a godly life. And so generously, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which can save. You don't need stores and munitions. You need to be generous with the gospel and you need to live it out loud so that people can see it. I would also tell you, I think it's, it's passages like this one, and this is probably the most controversial thing I'll say today, but it's passages like this one that at least for me make the, tri- the pre-tribulation rapture position extremely unlikely. There you go. You can email me at <laughs> eric at, no. And here's why. The saints suffer even though they're ultimately victorious. Daniel talks about the persecution of the saints here in Daniel 7. Paul talks about the persecution that believers will endure during this time in 1 Thessalonians 3. Jesus talks about the persecution that believers will go through during these end times in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. So if your position is sort of this pre-trib, rapture position, and it's driven largely by the fact that we won't suffer. I have some bad news for you. <laughs> you. You don't have as much textual support as you would like. While this fourth kingdom, or this fourth beast, really bothers Daniel here, he receives great assurance from the angel's revelation here. We can see why it would bother him. I mean, I think I think in Daniel there's almost a pastoral concern for the people of God as he looks into the future and he he sees that under the Antichrist, Christians will suffer. I think his heart breaks for that. But he's given this wonderful assurance here in verse 18. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And there's the encouragement in this passage. Got to move quickly here. So much to cover. This, uh, this one who is introduced to us as the Ancient of Days, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I think it's very clear. This is God the Father. Uh, and, and you can just look at these different visions in heaven to see that, this, that they all confer and agree with one another but we have a privilege to be given this vision of future earthly kingdoms and a vantage point into heaven itself where God dwells and where his glory and his splendor is manifest with tens of thousands attending to him. You ever watch an important person on you know, planet earth walk with their cadre of whatever, secret service or security or supporters? Tens of upon tens of thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, attending to him, worshiping him. The son of man that we see here, we understand to be the eternal son, the second member of the Trinity. And he's coming to establish his kingdom. Now I want to say this, something that came to mind this week as I was studying is we can really, I think, see from this revelation that's given here, why the religious leaders And Jerusalem in general, years later, were really waiting for a political leader who would rescue them from Roman oppression. We can see why that was their expectation when you read this revelation. I think we're oftentimes so hard on the religious leaders because they missed Jesus in their midst, right? But we can see what they were expecting here and why. Why? When we read the Danielic prophecy, we see that, that the first advent of Jesus didn't fit their expectations. And I want to talk a little bit about the nature of prophecy. And you've, you've heard me say this before. Prophecy is like looking at a mountain range. You know, when you, when you leave today, I don't know if the clouds will part. Yeah, you can see it. The range is out there. Look at it. And you can see these peaks and behind them other peaks. And you can kind of see them stacked up in, in a, you know, a fairly flat view from where we are. And just as any sheep hunter knows, you know, you're out, you're out on a ridge and you're looking off in the distance and within a mile, you say, oh, there's a, there's a promising band of rams there. Uh, that one on the left looks really good. It's maybe less than a mile away. Um, how long will it take us to get there? Well, you don't know because you don't know if the, 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 the hillside that you're on or the ridge that you're on sort of spines out and connects with that or if it undulates four or five times going down to the valley floor before you get there. The distance can be the same, but you can be hours away or days away depending on the train in between. And prophecy is a lot like that. We see the peaks, but we don't see the intervening valleys. And many times, something that is right now and something that is thousands of years down the line are right in the same sentence, as though they were seemingly right next to one another, but they're chronologically far off. And so that's one of the things that that we find here. Apocalyptic prophecy gives us these hopeful peaks, but it doesn't always show us the intervening valleys. And that's one of the problems that occurs when we make too much out of the details of prophecies or grip them too tightly, or grip too tightly our own interpretation of it. We need to hold loosely the details of this genre and hold tightly to the encouragement, the broad strokes encouragement that we get from it. And one of the primary encouragements that I find in this passage here is the introduction to the Son of Man. The rock hewn from heaven is now told to us in a personal way. This is a person who will come. A divine figure who will come, who will have the appearance of a Son of Man. And as we read the New Testament, we find that this is exactly how Jesus introduced himself to the Jewish people. 28 times In the book of Matthew, Jesus uses that title, the Son of Man, referring to himself. Now, let me be honest with you. Uh, As a long-term student of the Bible, learning and struggling along the way, there are plenty of times where I look at this title that Jesus appropriates for himself, the Son of Man, and I go, why would you use that title? What do we want to hear? Son of God, right? Just answer all the skeptics' question. Tell them, you're the Son of God. Son of man seems, you know, nebulous and uncertain. Let's just silence the Bart Ehrmans out there who claim that Jesus never ascribed deity to himself. Let's just silence them all right now and say, son of God. Well, in fact, that's what Jesus is doing to these original hearers. They would have known the Danielic prophecy. They were looking for this son of man. That would come and set up his earthly rule. So when he steps onto the scene and and ascribes this to himself, the Son of Man, he is saying, I am God's. I am here. I am the Son of God. I am here in your midst and I am inaugurating and setting up my kingdom and my rule. That's sweet, friends. If you've ever been tempted to look at the scripture and say, why wasn't Jesus more explicit about his deity? he was very explicit to his original audience and what they understood. When Jesus was referring to himself as son of man, he wasn't taking a title of inferiority. He was identifying himself to the Jewish community as the one prophesied to come by Daniel. In fact, I think it's it's verse 14 here that Jesus might even have had in mind when he gives the great commission to the disciples and tells them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples i believe he's referencing this and so what we learn here is that christ is the supreme source of political power on earth after his earthly kingdom is established and there's implications for us in that And one of those is this. That's why the gospel is the primary thing that we do here at Bethel Church. Preaching the gospel and making disciples of all of the good things that a church could do whether it's political engagement or initiatives or referendums or justice movements or what, all these other things, and those are good things for citizens to do and for Christians to do. But the reason the church doesn't grasp those things and try to get to the levers of power and to put those things in place is because Jesus has all the leverage that we need. And the mission of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and nobody else will man that post. It is uniquely given to us, and that is why we stand there. Let me get to my last point here. Um, We're going to go long today, I'll just warn you. We won't charge extra though, it's okay. (laughs) Ultimately, God's revelation given to Daniel here gives him comfort and confidence, and I would say not only to him, but it should to us as well, to an even greater extent. Um, Again, the, the, the apocalyptic form of Revelation is typically given in a time of crisis. We see this in Daniel and Zechariah, Isaiah, to name a few. And for our Judean exiles, I think the world looked like it was in crisis and it was over. They had every reason to question whether God was in control of things or not. They probably It probably looked to them like the nation of God was at the brink of destruction. But here at the end of chapter 27, we're, and we're told this, Daniel basically tells us he was freaking out. Uh, He was troubled, turned pale, kept the matter to himself. But in a short amount of time, he would be called into Belshazzar's throne room. And we see how he applies the revelation that he had been given into a a context. And I think that's a precedent for us. In this vision that comes, the first year of Belshazzar's reign, he, he calls Daniel in the throne room to interpret this writing on the wall. And you remember the poise and the confidence of Daniel in that moment. Do you remember this? In fact, a couple weeks ago, I jokingly referred to it as a bit of old man swagger, right? Uh, Daniel was in his 60s and 70s at this point. The king offers him a gold chain and riches and power. And Daniel says, I don't need those things, but I'll interpret your vision for you here. Well, we can see why. He had that kind of poise and that kind of confidence in that particular moment. His confidence didn't come from his age or his personal self-assurance. It came from the fact that he had heard from the Ancient of Days the way that things would go. And when Belshazzar calls him in and says, can you read this writing on the wall? He can say, yeah, I got that. You should hear my own vision. I know how these things go. I know where we're headed here. He didn't need Belshazzar's jewelry or the position of power. His confidence was in the king of kings, in the ancient of days, in the coming son of man who would give the kingdom to the saints and whose dominion would be forever and ever. Daniel was confident that God had all things well in hand. And I would say from a lesser to a greater, we should feel the same way. How much more so should you and I be at comfort and confident even in the days of crisis around us I think comfort and confidence should be the, the demeanor of Christians in this world, not anger and not panic, which we see too much of. Because we have seen the literal fulfillment to many of these prophecies. We've seen these kingdoms rise and fall. We have seen the arrival of this Son of Man and the person of Jesus. And this Son of Man has announced and inaugurated his coming kingdom. And we have seen this Son of Man go to the cross and purchase our pardon that we might stand secure in the kingdom to come based on his merit and not our effort. And we lay hold of this gift through faith. How much more so should we stand in comfort and confidence and in peace from the vantage point in human history that we have over what Daniel had? We know that our God reigns. And that we will go through times of trouble and suffering. But we will be victorious with him. Jesus said it this way. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the comfort and the confidence that we have. Let's pray. Lord, we could go on and on. There's so much here. and um, I pray, Lord, that the details, the minutia, the unnecessary would, would fall away and that which is crystal clear and essential would be burned into our minds, into our hearts and we would believe them with our whole heart. May we as Christians, as those who have come to faith in Christ and seen this coming Son of Man, Live out the confidence and the hope that we have that is in him, not in this, these earthly kingdoms. We say with your holy church, Lord Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Whether it's very soon or hundreds of years off, Lord, help us to live as we ought. We love you and we look forward to your rule and your reign forever and ever. Amen.